0: Hello and welcome to Read It For The Pictures, the comic book podcast where we read it for the pictures. I'm Dave Clark, and as always, I'm here with variable undefined exception in joke model line 171, Neil Capit. How you doing, Neil?
1: This is a good week, Dave, because we have two comics that, A, aren't from Marvel and DC... And B, are pretty good. First up is Zodiac Force: Cries of the Fire Prince number one by Kevin Panetta, Paulina Ganucho, and Sarah Stern. And Jupiter's Legacy 2 by Mark Miller, Frank Quietly, and Sonny Goh.
0: Yes, we got two superhero comics, but nothing connected to the big two. But yeah, you know, like call Zodiac
1: Star Force a superhero comic. It's more of a magical girl comic. There is a difference. Mm,
0: if you say so, it involves five people with secret identities who transform into costumes to fight monsters. But yes, Zodiac Star Force: Cries of the Fire Prince, Issue One. Yeah, what do you think?
1: I picked this because I had read and enjoyed the first mini series that introduced the ca- characters. I enjoyed the first one both for the story and the art. I mean, it's basically like a, a more complex, more serious, more angsty version of a magical girl show like Sailor Moon or, okay, it's nothing like Mad- Madoka Magica because it's not really an outright deconstruction and Lovecraftian territory. I mean, they play it pretty straight. They just go into a bit more depth than you'd expect but it's still I still enjoyed this basic premise five teenage girls with magic powers and identities based on the zodiac constellations this one is the second mini the band's back together and their enemies the mean girls with magic powers are back to plotting a new scheme of revenge and this the artist Polina Ganucho, I hope I'm saying it right, she's done the previous series and a comic called Another Castle, which was that was something from I believe Boom, no it was from Oni, but it was a similar thing with like a princess saving herself and fighting daddies with ninja abilities. This does seem to be kind of reclaiming the girly tropes from the kind of get cultural ghetto they're in since i've been doing my my little pony friendship is magic marathon i've had to reconsider a lot of things about these girl show tropes that i previously kind of reflexively looked down on so yeah you somehow
0: found yourself in a position where you needed to watch my little pony for work
1: i well i out of the interest of keeping my work, work life and my podcast life separate. I won't go into details, but yes, I did start with that intent and I ended up watching the whole thing because I was genuinely enjoying it. And I have to whenever I felt like this oh this was too cutesy and saccharine for me, I had to ask myself like why am I so awkward saying the name Twilight Sparkle when without a shred of irony and full confidence I can say the name Big Boss.
0: Yeah, you um, yeah, you posted about that on um, Facebook. Uh, my theory remains that you've just heard Optimus Prime or Big Boss or Doctor Doom more, more often than Twilight Sparkle because they're all equally
1: stupid names. Yeah, but yeah. the larger pop culture really looks down on things with a girly connotation, and hopefully that's changing, and we judged... These things, not by the gendering of their packaging, but by the content of their quality. To paraphrase a quote of far greater importance. Yeah, um,
0: this was my first experience with any of the creators on this book, and I think the last time I I was exposed to sort of anything related would be when when I was a kid and Sailor Moon was on before Dragon Ball Z on Morning Cartoons. And, I mean, I watched it just because I was up, but, um, like, I thought it was all right, but it didn't have a super strong affection for it. But no, this was... Uh, I liked this comic. Cause, um, a few weeks ago, we did a um, that um Betty and Veronica Archie comic that was done by a traditional superhero artist. And now we have a superhero comic done by something close to a Archie house style, or the old Archie house style.
1: I wouldn't go that far. I mean, it seems inspired quite a bit more by Sailor Moon than Archie, and a lot of the visual language here and the character designs and the page layouts is pretty obviously manga and anime inspired. The... They're really drawing heavily on the tropes in both cases. So, like, you can surmise from the character designs that this is a magical girl squad. But you can also tell just from looking at the cover image that a lot of effort has been made into differentiating the characters from each other. They're all bas- wearing the basic uniform, but you can tell like differences in body type, in accessories, in coloring even in, like, general personality.
0: Yeah, that was uh, one of the things I was going to comment on. The designs of each of the girls, both in and out of costumes, are, like, really solid and distinct. But um, I think there are three male characters in this. There's two boyfriends, and maybe it's just two.
1: I've I counted are uh, like, two boyfriends, one of whom doesn't stay the character's boyfriend. There's one guy with the mean girls trying to summon the demon. And there's the demon himself, who is on the last page. And he's very much like a female gaze character. He's naked with only a tactically placed set of clouds covering his package. And he's, like, posing sensually. He's got, like, the pouty lips and the coiffed hair and basically he's a incubus a male succubus in disguise and he did make me feel a bit uncomfortable i'll admit which is more of why i have to do these immersions in girl culture because why is that making me uncomfortable when i can just glance at say vampirella and not even flinch a bit Um, okay
0: i mean i wasn't fazed by it
1: well, I, perhaps I'm exaggerating. Just that it did was a bit of a surprise because it's not something you usually see. I mean, it's not like I needed my fainting couch. My fainting couch is reserved for other things, such as when there's instances of harm done to cats.
0: Yeah. Well, if nothing else, having this podcast have a long form arc about your sexual awakening could be interesting. But now the point I was um. Oh,
1: for, it's not a sexual awakening. It's a cognitive understanding of gender tropes across the larger Western culture.
0: If you insist. But yeah, the point I was making is that the female characters are all really distinct, distinct and have, like, s- solid designs, but all the males are ki- kind of have the same face, and, like, I think both of the boyfriends are wearing, like, just shirt and jeans, so...
1: Yeah. And they're both, at least from this issue, pretty flat characters. I mean, Kim, the stockier girl with the red bangs, her boyfriend is pretty much just there to be supportive and to be her practice dummy for wrestling. The other boyfriend gets broken up with. Yeah. And again, it's the sort of thing where I can't even begin to count the number of superhero comics where the male characters have at least an attempt at differentiation, while the females all have the same kind of like top-heavy brats doll look.
0: Yeah, I I guess maybe there's like a meta commentary thing going on there.
1: Well, I still think it's not in the comics' favor. Like you should try to differentiate your characters. Period. Yeah. Well, maybe the artist just has a
0: type. But yeah, um, yeah, it's um. I thought it was quite interesting how much the comic relies on like the strong designs of well the the monsters have strong designs the protagonists have strong designs both in and out of costume yeah because there's very little like it seems to be flat coloring for the most part i I think there's a gradient on the red girl's hair when she's in costume oh and in a few backgrounds but yeah for the most part it's flat coloring but it works really well
1: It's flat coloring and relatively simple line work. There's not a lot of detail, but there is a lot of stuff in terms of visual content displayed. Like, we already mentioned the character designs and distinctions. There's also quite a bit of interesting body language here. Like, in the fight scenes, we see a lot of attempt at different combat moves. Like, I have already mentioned the scene of Kim practicing the basics of CQC with her boyfriend. There's also Kim, when she's in costume, doing a slide on her little energy shield, like it's a surfboard. And Molly, the girl with the long, dark red hair, doing a sliding tackle against one of the monsters.
0: Yeah, there's a lot of strong body language throughout, and especially in the fight. But one of the disadvantages that comes from having, like, it's everything's very simplified, is that it looks a little bit empty when we get to panels that don't have background. I see
1: They've used, they use speed lines a lot to try and compensate for that. I'm not sure it always works, but... Yeah, it's... It's not like they're just leaving backgrounds blank.
0: No, there is, like, it's done... There seems to be, like, an intent because it correlates with, like, action happening and wanting to draw focus to certain things but i don't know maybe it like the images could be cropped differently but i mean there's only you can't do like a cr- that tight of a crop on a very simplified face because then it starts to not read yeah but that's perhaps nitpicking i do like the monster designs though
1: they're basically big wads of black goo with appliances for heads like there's this hulking monstrosity whose core is a washing machine and there's this kind of quadrupedic dinosaur thing with a blender for a head it's pretty clever
0: yeah it's kind of like an interesting way to approach the designs because there's like a unity to them but also you could imagine like more elaborate interesting ones in in further issues
1: well, it's always good to have that kind of baseline aesthetic with a lot of differentiation. You also see that with the Zodiac Star Force designs, the same color pattern with different accessories and arrangements of the clothes.
0: Yeah, and also they're named after Zodiac signs. But there's only five of them on the team, so I imagine at some point there'll be seven more introduced.
1: The previous story had a lot of world building with like the background of Zodiac Star Force and the surprisingly tragic history behind previous members. This is very much a trope heavy comic, but it's also done a really good job like, setting it up so that it doesn't feel like they just filed the serial numbers off of something existing.
0: Oh, whatever could you be referring to?
1: I don't know, but not this. Are you insinuating that I'm giving a compliment that's a backhanded one towards something else? Why would I ever do that? When have I ever done that?
0: Yeah, but, yeah, this this was good. It, um, like, yeah, solid body language, solid designs... The story was, act- was um, sets up a fair bit as well.
1: There's also that check-in-in-with-Savvy page that's just kind of a funny intermission, which is just Savvy, the red-headed, freckled girl, feeding her turtle Hellboy, which is also a nice little nod to the fact that there's a Dark Horse comic. Oh,
0: yeah. Is that is this, like, just a short page that's a non-sequitur, a reference to anything? I don't
1: think so. I think it's just a, an overly long joke. Like, you wouldn't need a full page to do show a girl feeding a t- turtle unless you were trying to do it for comedic effects. Or maybe there's something in the third
0: panel that is paid up, is setting up a twist in the th- coming issues.
1: You think Hellboy the Turtle has some kind of evil scheme in mind? Perhaps. Oh, and um, when we were talking about um, Lilith Dark a
0: few weeks ago, um, yeah, and we talked about how like they'd use spot blacks, but in a way that didn't quite hold together. Mm-hmm. This is quite the opposite. The spot blacks are very deliberate. Like in the scene where the bad girls are doing a séance, it's used to um, communicate. Like the light coming out of their little pentagram thing and
1: it's used As well to... as the cloaks kind of having that spot black cover shadow covering half their faces until they remove it.
0: Yeah. And the monsters have got it on them to establish form. Yeah, it's Yeah. Yeah, it make it really makes the simplified design sing. But yes, that was Not to mention.
1: Bought blacks for the blood of the bad girl being ritually sacrificed to summon the prince. Which, I guess, is also trying to keep this relatively all ages by not coloring the blood red. That was a common device I saw in 90s X-Men comics whenever Wolverine appeared. And it has its uses here.
0: Yeah. Maybe that was to try and make it all ages. I... Yeah, I don't think I would describe this as an all-ages comic. It's
1: it's PG, PG PG-13 at the absolute worst. Unless you consider the fact that it has a lesbian couple as a step which was established in the previous series. But if that's a problem for you, then please stop listening to this podcast. We don't want you.
0: Yeah, but yes, that was Zodiac Starforce Cries of the Fire Prince, Issue 1. But yes, now we move on to Jupiter's Legacy, Volume 2, Number 5. Quite a mouthful.
1: Well, you were very fond of this comic, right? To the point of going back and getting all the other issues.
0: Yeah, when you picked this one out, it was one that I'd been meaning to get to because Frank Quietly is my boy. I um, I'd read all of the previous volume, and before recording today, today I read all of this volume. Where I think you just you've just read this vo- issue out of the whole story.
1: No, I've been reading the whole thing. I never overlook a Frank Quietly comic. He is my boy too. In fact, I've spent quite a bit of time earlier this week on a Facebook X-Men group tra- defending his name against various X-Men fans who complain about it. Or- yes, of course. They're going on about, oh, his fa- characters are so ugly. Their faces. Ugh. When, I mean, it's the little line work he does, It's it doesn't look quite like the typical Jim Lee faces you'd see that are perfectly smoothed over. It's actually has a lot more character to it, more emphasis on actual head structure and facial muscles than you'd see with the complaints are especially over the female characters, and he doesn't draw doe-eyed brat's dolls, so of course there's going to be complaints from fans whose knowledge of art and comics begins with Jack Kirby, and ends with Jim Lee. No offense to either of them. I just don't think the typical X-Men fan, as also evidenced by the constant bitching and moaning about Frank Whiteley's writer-collaborator on that book, Grant Morrison, has a lot of knowledge of things outside the X-Men. Anyway, I...
0: Yeah, as much as I enjoy... Um, this podcast turning into a subtweet at all the people you're mad at on Facebook. This is a pure Frank Quietly love area.
1: Exactly. Sorry.
0: Yeah, this, um... Yeah, because I read all five... Have you, like, read the previous issues in this volume?
1: Yeah, I read all of both Jupiter's Legacy 1 and 2 because of Frank Quietly. I mean, it. the writer, Mark Miller, pre was the one who helped quietly get his name on that Authority series way back when.
0: Wasn't he? I thought he was established before the Authority.
1: Might have been. Like, he did Flex Menchelow with Grant Morrison, and he also did that JLA Earth 2 graphic novel that was really awesome. But that seems to be around the time when he came to prominence, and since his work takes so long to do... It's always a tremendous treat to see it. He's like Jeff Darrow in that regard. Like Jeff Darrow talk- or Haley's Comet. Well, you still want to be struck by it. Yeah.
0: Um trying to focus the discussion on this issue because I imagine we could go on forever. There's um
1: Well, just thank our lucky stars that unlike other Mark Miller comics, the script does not include booby trapped womb at any point.
0: Yeah. There's um there's one trick that Frank quietly does that I wanted to focus on and it's sort of an interesting contrast with Zodiac Starforce. He um he tries to find so how do I put this? He tries to find ways to do blank backgrounds i put that in quotation marks but contextualized by the setting so he might have an establishing shot of a room and it's like kind of a blank room with like very few features but the features are really detailed but it's mostly a sparse room and then in the, pr- the subsequent panels he'll have like maybe a tighter shot of a character and the like empty background is make sense in context. He's also got scenes in this comic where like, they're fighting outside and it seems the horizon line is made fairly low so that the empty sky can uh, dominate most of the panel. And
1: It does give it a pretty impressive sense of scope. Yeah. I guess would be the kind of widescreen storytelling that quietly helped popularize in comics like a decade back with other artists like Brian Hitch but here I never really got the sense that the negative space was just laziness like there's really setting a sense of place like a wide field and maybe there are a few occasions where like it's a close up on a face where you do really see the negative space of the sky and the gradient and it, it is conspicuous But for the most part, it conveys, like, a sense of importance. I keep thinking, also, that when Quietly is tasked with creating a different backdrop, he will put a lot of detail into setting the place. Like, in the opening, when Walter and Repro are having their psychic fight, and they just keep jumping around different memories in each other's heads, and it goes from, let's see... It starts with like the childhood holiday, then goes to Dubai, then goes to like one guy's dying wife in a hospital, then another guy's war injury back in the First World War. And I just blown away by the, that first four page sequence. They keep saying like, oh, comics are losing ground in movies and spectacle. But I still can't think of a movie that would do that, that would, like, design four different sets just for, like, a short fight scene to open an issue. Yeah. That's something only comics can do, and only, really, an artist, like, quietly, given the time he needs to do it.
0: I think the beach may be reused from the first issue of Volume 1.
1: You still had to draw it all again. Yeah,
0: and obviously the Dubai scene is recycled from earlier issues in this. But yes, it is. I am. I imagine that if this was a monthly comic and the script and the script came across any other artist's desk and they saw, oh, here's four panels where there needs to be a very spe- like a specific beach, and then anyway, that, moving on from there to like a hospital scene and uh, the top of a Dubai tower, it's as I imagine that would be quite frustrating if you had to do it on a monthly schedule. Yeah. Um but yes about the big empty spaces that are set up deliberately they it seems like they're designed to contrast with really dense detail in places
1: That's a good point. Like, oh There's my... a lot of figure detail not not on faces, on hairstyles, on clothing. Even the characters wearing costumes, like you can see everywhere where it's stitched. Yeah, and like
0: wrinkles in the Every... fabric. Yeah. I guess the sort of like perfect distillation of that like design trick that Frank Quietly's done in all his work are these robot guards. They like they're fairly early in on the comic and they're similar to the robot designs from Wii three. How they have the um they've got like big smooth like shells but
1: Since that's one of my favorite comics ever, I did appreciate that.
0: Yes. And,
1: There's and... also that scene where the kid, Jason, is being captured by this large, like, insectoid robot. Yeah, you that's, see...
0: that's the one I'm talking about. Yeah, it's got these big, smooth shells, but underneath it's got super tiny, meticulously detailed, like, machinery.
1: Yeah, you see all the shafts and wires and wing nuts. It's very... All the treads on the tires for the part that's wheeled. It's amazing just for what's basically a henchman that'll be easily destroyed. Yeah.
0: And the like the really dense detail plays against the really smooth, blank like shell of it and it's a, it's a very interesting contrast and it's used all throughout. Like you get like a face with tons and tons of detail against a, a blank background that's set up and established.
1: Would that be kind of the opposite of what we saw last week in Chow and *Cowboy*, where there were relatively simple figures but unimaginably complex backgrounds?
0: Yeah, I guess in a way, like, I well, comparatively, Jeff Darrow doesn't let up, and every single bit of the page is filled with all sorts of detail and jokes, which like it like was interesting, and I like I liked it, and it's his own its aesthetic, but this is. Something different, but this is... Like, it's different. It tries to sort of have, like, areas for the eye to rest throughout.
1: Yeah.
0: Oh, and there's one more trick I just sort of noticed as we were going through this about, yeah? about the widescreen panels, is they try... He tries to set it up so that your reading direction changes as you go through them. Like, I'm looking at, uh, on Comixology, it's page 12.
1: I'm reading it physically, so...
0: Ooh, but yeah, it's the scene where um, the main guy and the big bad guy are fighting. and um, There's, like, one panel where he's got his hand really fast stretched out.
1: Yeah, I see that. That panel, Walter, the villain, has his hand stretched out, and then it cuts wide across where the hero is being launched to the other side of the page
0: as you're reading it down your eye jumps to his hand stretched out which is on the right hand side of the panel and then reads to the left to his face and then as you go down your eyes go from the left hand side of the, your sorry so you've read that panel from the right to the left and then as you go down you read from the left which is Walter again, to the right, which is the hero like being blown away. And then as you turn the page, your eyes on the right at the hero and reads to the left over to Walter. And then like the next panel read or the next two panels read left to right. And then the panel after that reads from right to the text box at the left. And I think that's the trick to making this widescreen panels work. Often when um other artists do the widescreen panels it's it's almost an a way just trying to ape movie storyboards, which, like, obviously, movie frames don't have to be designed with composition on a page in mind. True. But this sort of gets the eye to dart, like, from the right to left across one and from left to right across the other. And,
1: so it's kind of a zigzagging pattern downward.
0: Yeah, where if you're just, like, from left to right on all of the panels, it would, yeah, seem kind of... Like, repetitive and lazy. Yeah. Also, apart from, like, the the scenes with the girl who can shrink down to really, really tiny size... Yeah. As far as I understand it, there are no speed lines on in this comic. Apparently that's just a thing Frank Quietly doesn't do.
1: Well, he conveys motion in a lot of other more subtle ways. Like, it's entirely in the context of the environment where... There's a scene where Walter is fighting Repro during the psychic fight and interrupts it by dropping a car on him. And you can see, like, the parts of the car, all the bits and pieces of glass and metal, it moving away from the impact zone.
0: Oh, yeah, the car's positioned in such a way that it reads like it's about to fall over. And so, but because it's like upright about to fall over it gives a sense of it's that specific moment in time. Yeah there's a, a lot of ways to sort of as- like that are that established motion in this that are oh,
1: there's also I would be remiss if I didn't mention this one sequence with Chloe and Brandon, the siblings fighting on Mars and it just starts top of the page. they're on the barren wasteland. The t- there's four panels on the page the middle two are the people back on earth just marveling at this and then we see back on mars they're just an impact crater with like a huge meteor concave indentation with chloe standing and brandon lying unconscious and it's really effective because all the violence that happened is just left to the imagination like obviously she easily won that fight and beat him like a baby seal but we just see the before and the after since a lot of comics is about that kind of events between the panels i thought this was a particularly brilliant way to show it
0: also i i knew i promised i wouldn't talk about previous issues but there's a scene in an earlier one where it cuts back and forth between a conversation and some action. It was the kid going up against the um, superhero bodyguard in Dubai and like the shots from the action give a very, very clear sense of timing. Like it, So, and with the conversation cut between them, that timing also, like, corresponded over to the conversation. And, yeah, that was a cool trick. Yeah. I I think it was in um, Will Eisner's book on comics, Comics and Sequential Art. He had had a part where he was talking about establishing timing, and he had this example where it had a, a faucet dripping and a regular layout to the panels. And because human beings have a basic understanding of the timing that's involved with a faucet dripping, you can connect that to like their real-world understanding of that timing to the site, like the size of the panels, and that timing can continue over. And it's sort of used, like, throughout this, They'll like, they'll have a character moving over, like, some area and in a very regular way, and that corresponds... Then that then gets corresponded over to the panel size and it makes, like, sets up the timing. Like, I've heard people talk about one of the cool things about comics is that you can read them at whatever pace you want, but I've always been sceptical about that because I've seen Frank quietly go to crazy lengths to like build panels in such a way that you read it at the speed that he wants you to read it
1: well that's why we're reading him because he's such a master of the form and he sells everything in this script even the ending which is the status quo returning and being celebrated in a series that prior to this was all about challenge. Challenging the status quo. Yeah, this whole
0: Jupiter's Legacy story has been about politics, but yeah, it doesn't have any particularly complex idea, like political ideas. It's like no more con, like politically insightful than the L.E.G. movie, which, while fun, is hardly a political manifesto.
1: Well, it's kind of the typical way that politics are addressed in superhero comics, so. Like, Jupiter's Legacy Part 1 had a schism in the hero community between those who just wanted to focus on villains and leave the politics to the politicians and those who wanted to use their powers to actually make a difference. And, of course, the ones who try to make a difference end up killing a lot of people and become the baddies. And the old ways are reasserting. the second where heroes basically just live public i just live secret identities in public when they're not fighting villains and don't try to rock the boat yeah. so but it works here i mean i was glad when the heroes gave the press conference to the crowd with all the american flags because it has been such a great experience with the art that the flags convey the jubilation instead of all the unfortunate implications that we're talking about now yeah so there is a I did notice, like, on the next page in front of the diner, like, there's just some guy on the street with a newspaper that says President Elizabeth Warren. I think that the fellow lefties in the audience, which is probably our entire audience, will appreciate that.
0: Yeah, if you were just watching American politics and needed to choose a name just to throw on there, that's one that would probably put a smile on a few faces. Yeah. Yeah. But yes... This is gorgeous.
1: Done hopefully, it again. Hopefully he'll be back for the next one, which I know there's Jupiter's Requiem beginning twenty nineteen.
0: Yeah, if that um end if that like page that said there was another story was coming, I would have like this feels like the end of the movie that like started with the vault vo- with volume one.
1: With the status quo being reinserted at the end, contrary to what Dan Harmon would say about movies versus TV.
0: Yeah, well, there's, they've, well, the heroes have learned. The young characters have realized that it's important to be a part of the world and to give back. Like, the larger geopolitical situation has returned, but our characters have changed. They can't go back to their old lives of just boozing and partying.
1: Fair enough.
0: So yeah, but yes. I mean,
1: there is, and there is at least lip service idea that we've got to watch the boardrooms as much as the alleyways. Hopefully sure. they'll go into a bit more detail in that in the next series, but I, that's in 2019, and who knows where the world will be then.
0: I, I don't need them to go into any more detail of that. Um, like, the political message of this book just seems to be, it's nice to be nice.
1: Yeah, really iconoclastic, that Mark Miller... He
0: sort of pivoted away from that. He did that like Forrest Gump Superman book, and like this, like Jupiter's Legacy has been all about throwing off extravagant partying. Maybe he's trying to pivot away from being the like the creative force behind Clint Magazine.
1: Well, that's true. I've noticed that, and I have enjoyed his work a lot more since he stopped being the booby-trapped womb guy.
0: I don't don't know, I'd buy a comic called The Booby Trapped Forum.
1: You can go read Nemesis, it's all there. No, no, I need it
0: to be called The Booby Trapped Forum. I
1: need it to be a little bit
0: more on the nose. So,
1: what, it's about this pregnant woman who can explode... Out of her womb?
0: You can find out more about what that comic's about when I make it and get it published in 2020. Oh, right,
1: it's the booby-trapped womb guy, so it's basically the plot of the Arnold Schwarzenegger movie Jr. as a superhero. Yeah, I, let's
0: not spill any more ideas about this. We've got to make this thing.
1: Well, first, I'm going to bleach out my brain a bit. I didn't need that mental image. But
0: yes, um, if you're one of our listeners... That doesn't like Frank quietly for the ugly faces. Then I don't know. Read Wii Three, which is all animals, and then realize I should have
1: the last time I should have picked that as the peak of cat storytelling on my scale for judging cats and comics. Well, I it's, feel it's not terrible. really
0: fair to compare Wii Three to other comics. So
1: no, it, it's it it's definitely one of the greatest comics I've ever read and. I may or may not have wept like a ten-year-old pilgrim widow by the ending.
0: Yeah, similarly for me. But yes, yes, we're losing any sense that we're objective at all now, so maybe that now's the time to wrap it up.
1: Yeah, this has gone in different directions than anticipated.
0: Oh, I, I just knew that we'd ramble on and on about how much we love Frank quietly, so that's why I have, we talked about it second.
1: That, and we wanted to give Zodiac Star Force a fair shake.
0: True that. So where can people find you,
1: Neil? I am at Wirecats.com. W-Y-R-E-C-A-T-S dot com. It returns after a two-week hiatus for vacation, and hopefully I will solve the problem of how you can actually show the superheroes dealing with the real baddies. And
0: you can find my stuff at DaveClarkArt.com. And that's Clark with an E. Anyway, this has been Read It for the Pictures, and we'll catch you next time. See ya. Bye.